page 137. The natural world of koans. What is the heart mind of the ancient Buddhists? Flowering groves, forests of every color, the blue cliff record. The koans are deeply embedded in the natural world from the majestic white caps overwhelming the sky, mountain ranges swallowed by massive clouds to the finely observed monkeys with babies on their backs hanging from the fruit they're feasting on. Yunwu advises us to throw open our doors and windows when spring comes to the hidden valleys and wild ravines because even if we can't see them, for whom else are hundreds of flowers bursting into bloom? Our relationship with the koans is a call and response. They call, we respond. Although it can seem that in the beginning we put out a call in our lives to which the koans responded. The koans see our relationship with the natural world in the same way. The Japanese poet Iku was enlightened by a crow's laugh, a crow person calling forth the true human person. Even what we think of as the non-sentient calls us. Yunman once asked a monastic what he'd been up to. And the monk replied that he'd been talking to a rock. Anyone who's been in a long retreat knows this moment perfectly. Yunman asked him, did the rock nod and reply? The monk didn't know what to say, so Yunman went on. The rock was nodding to you before you even spoke. Yunman is alluding to a folktale about a new monk whose first congregation is a group of stones who nod appreciatively at his sermon. But as he always seemed to, Yunman adds a twist. The rocks and stones are beckoning to us before we even speak. That's nice, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The body of the world as a whole and in its parts is vivid in the koans. The hazy moon of enlightenment, a tree older than the forest it stands in, the red dust of the human world, an ocean of suffering, a heart as steady as the earth, a mind as spacious as the sky. We are invited to take our place within this beloved body as embodied beings ourselves. <laughs> but as soon as we might solidify a sense of my body belonging to myself, we are moved in and out of the bodies and lives of other beings, so we can swap dreams for a while. 500 lives as a fox are lives of grace, woman says, and suddenly we're in another version of our lives, one in which we experience wild fox doubt, stepping carefully onto the ice and listening for moving water to see if it's safe to cross. Even the artifacts of the human world call to us. Someone asks the kind of question that was always being asked. What is the true Dharma eye? The reply this time was a broken millstone. It's a hunting sort of eye, that huge stone disc, and it's fractured, maybe in pieces no longer fit for its intended use. What possibilities open up with uselessness? uselessness? That's a very Taoist sort of question. In some schools of Zen, as in other traditions, a common metaphor for the spiritual life is cultivating a field. Though people in a number of the koans are doing farm work, this isn't the metaphor that has captured the school's imagination. Instead, the koans are full of wanders and wild places, particularly in mountain forests. The inner landscape of the heart mind, which is continuous <coughs> with the 
dark mysteries of the cosmos is the same kind of untamed place as those mountains. The approach of the wanderer is less about marking boundaries and negotiating with the natural world than <coughs> about meeting the wilderness on its own terms and developing the strength that turns encounters with the unexpected into radiance. The kinship with the world is one of the koans most moving legacies. For most of the history of the koans, our lives within the natural world were taken for granted, something no longer possible in the age of climate crisis. Extinction and pan pandemic, not pandemonium. Our love of the natural world is no longer innocent, assuming that nature will always be here to delight and open us. It still calls us like that, but in more urgent and devastating ways too. Even now at the cliff edge of too late, we take up as a koan what Paul Eulard said, because even now, even here, there is quote, another world, but it is inside this one. Inside the world we are making, there is the ancient world still calling to us. May the radical empathy of the koans help us respond. I, I do think it's interesting that um, this, this concept that uh, nature's, uh, nature's role is to delight us that it's, it somehow is here to serve the human species of nature instead of, I mean, I think some people do hold that view instead of seeing, you know, the human species as, you know, one more species within the whole that is nature just uh, the sort of service economy is very odd. I was, I was thinking about the same thing, Nandia. Well, I guess kind of in a different way. Like when you first read that line, I was like, that's some hell of a, uh, expectations for, to have on mother nature or nature period. I like that there is another world, but it is inside this one. Hmm. Hi, Charlie. Charlie, do you want to jump in or? Because it'll be your turn if you want to. Can you hear us? Trouty? <laughs> Hello. What is going on with the sound tonight? <laughs> There's another world, but it's inside this one. <laughs> Maybe Trouty is in the other world. I think. She's doing something. Oi. I'm sorry. Okay. Can you hear us, Trouty? Very odd. Can someone text to her, maybe? I'm trying to get into the chat. Okay. I got it. Oh, you're doing it? Okay. Yeah. 
No. Oh, wait, I just heard that. I cannot hear you. But we, we, we can hear her, but it, she can't hear us. She, maybe she needs to put a mic in the thing. Well. Maybe it's her speaker volume. I'm going to call her. Just a second. Well, Kim, what was the problem when you couldn't hear us? Maybe it's the same thing. Um, I think Kim could hear us, but we could No, now, Kim. but at the beginning, he... I, I'd answer your question, except it's it's so complicated. All right, never mind. <laughs> I can't handle that. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> Trouty? Uh, yes? Um... So do you have your, you have your volume speaker? way down? No. Well, I well, she, she can obviously hear you, Kim. She's responding. Well, we're on the telephone. He's on the phone. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a speaker icon. Yes, the, yes, yes, yes. On the top. No, it's at the bottom for me, but. But I, I just. Marked it. Uh, is this better? Well, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I hear it now. Okay, thanks. Can you hear? Yes. hear? Can you? Oh, yes, I can hear you. Uh, and you, you can hear me too? Yes. Okay, thank you. God provides. Well, it's still the same level of green on the microphone. Anyway, thank you. Okay. You want to read, Trouty? Sure. I'm sorry I'm late. No problem. You'll still get full credit. <laughs> Do I need it? Yeah. <laughs> Embodiment. Someone asked Dahui, what's it like when mind and Buddha are forgot both forgotten? Dahui replied, the sun revealed in the hands of an old woman selling fans. One of the oddities of the koan tradition is that embodiment is so important in the arc of awakening, yet the tradition is silent on most of its specifics. Part of this is the tradition's reticence to lay out a template for the realized life, because a realized life will be different for each person. What it offers is the ongoing companionship of the cons to support, challenge, and deepen the process of finding your own realized life. Another part of the reticence comes from the fact that for most of their history, the koans have been part of monastic life, and monastic questions of embodiment are largely answered for better and worse uh, by institutional norms of conduct. As koans find homes in lives outside the monasteries, the embodiment part of the arc of awakening needs a fresh look for the sake of both people keeping company with cons and the traditional itself. There's a lot to work with, starting with one of Chan's most consequential innovations, the conviction that we most immediately experience the Dharma, the teachings through people's lives. Even a figure like Guanyin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion is described in terms of what she does with her many hands and eyes. This led to a shift from scriptures and philosophical texts to biographies. The koans begin in stories and sayings. So one thing we can do is take up new stories and sayings and notice which ones stick. Hmm. Riches can often be found in the biography biographical material that's in a supporting role around what's traditionally considered the main point of this of a story hmm. huh. I remember being told that that Sartre 
you know, the French existentialist, Sartre, um, that his philosophy was better expressed in his, in his novels than in his, you know, when he wrote straight philosophy. A story has that way of really saying what you mean, where if you try to say it, you know, philosophically, it's not so clear sometimes. Okay, uh, I guess I'm next. We can revive practices like mirror meditation, this page, that work with people's idea about their own embodiment. We can explore not just what happens in a meditation, but how a koan is embodied in a person's whole life. We can make conversations about our lives with koans, an important part of communal practice. And we can continue to emphasize the great sacrament of koan practice, embodying a koan in a way that makes it possible for someone else to experience it too. Milan, just to check, are you still not wanting to read? Yeah, just listening, thank you. Okay. We also take note of what's missing from the tradition, like with some exceptions, women's lives, the concerns of domestic life, sexuality, except in terms of the rules about it, and ideas about gender, except in ways it would be harmful to perpetuate. Class and power come up occasionally, but race doesn't in the relatively homogenous dominant cultures of most koan history. Interestingly, a number of the greatest figures in the tradition, like Huang, pronounced very wrong, and ancestor Ma, came from the geographical or social margins of Chinese culture. And this is always highlighted in their biographies. Some attitudes toward our physicality are archaically severe, which I take up in the harsh. Yet some of those attitudes have persisted into our own time. When I was first studying Zen, for example, there were debates about whether people's differing physical cap capacities should be accommodated so they could participate, or if that would delight dilute the practice. Well, that's interesting. Um, so Trouty, the way I've always said his name is Wee Yang. Is that is like a we H-U-I? Well, you just moved the page. Oh, no, it's right here, yes. Hui Neng? Yeah. Hui Neng? Yeah. So H-U-I is like we. Well, I for myself, I think I'm saying H. <laughs> oh, really? We, well, I, I mean... How yeah, do you I, say it, Charlie? Hui, hui Neng? Hui Neng. Yeah. So, yeah, but, you know, I, I don't know much about Chinese pronunciation. I know that tone is extremely important. Like when you say how, 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 or whatever, it may mean yes, it may say may be goodbye. It can be, I, I don't know, I forgot now, but it can be four or five different things. Mm. So the pronunciation really uh, gets us foreigners because yeah, the way how we pronounce it in, in the names and, and words, uh, they may not be recognizable by Chinese people, Chinese speakers. Okay, who's reading now? It's on me. I don't believe the absences which separate us from each other will survive our time of upheaval which entangles bodies, human bodies, the bodies of other creatures, the body of the world in such immediate and powerful ways. Entanglements that cry out for tenderness more than contests. Here's an old story. 
a small blessing on this work about a spiral of warm recognition and gift giving among three persons. As we Sean and his students, young Sean, were out for a stroll one day, a passing crow dropped a persimmon on the path in front of them. Gushan picked it up and passed it to young Sean, who washed the fruit in a nearby stream and returned it to his teacher with gratitude for what Gushan had given him. Gushan then opened the fruit down the middle and passed half to young Sean, promising that he would never go empty handed. That's sweet. Mm -hmm. yeah. The quiet intimacy of this story can also be found in the ways the greatest teachers in the original koan speak about illness and death. Illness or, and death are not adversaries or problems but poignant encounters with the limits of the body, taking place in the field of the limitless. The ease of passage from one state to another, or perhaps the continuity of the states, is apparent. Or we skip Charlie. No, idea. I think it's me. When ancestor Ma was in his last illness, someone asked him how he was. Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, he said. This is a reference to two Buddhas, one of whom lived 1,800 years, the other a day and a night. The enduring and the transitory, the body with its limits in the field of the limitless, but also perhaps the liminal times between some days and nights when sun and moon share the sky. Ma lying in his bed under the sun of his remaining days and the moon of the night he's about to enter, the night that's already there. Ma with the sun and the moon in his chest, describing how it feels. One day, Gangsha left his temple to roam in the mountains. <coughs> when he returned, someone asked him where he went. I went out following the scented grasses and returned, returned chasing the falling blossoms. These words are often spoken at funerals as an evocation of the naturalness of living and dying. However it comes, Death is a part of rather than the end of our lives. Even in death, we remain part of the beloved body of the world. How about the next sentence, too? Well, that's how I, I connected it, yeah, that they're spoken at funerals. I know, but uh, if you mark only, well, anyway, that's. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Koan, Mirror Meditation. Sleeping through dawn, an old woman encounters the ancient mirror and clearly sees a face no other than her own, attributed to Dongshan. The medieval Japanese nuns, Tsukoji, see the one who asks this practice mirror meditation. When we were preparing a site in Santa Fe for a long retreat, we'd begin with the work meeting. And the work meeting will begin with the koan. We often use the origin story of the mirror that hung in the Tsukoji meditation hall. When they were laying the foundations for a new temple, the builders discovered a buried stone coffer. 
Inside was a circular mirror with the words perfect realization engraved on the back. In those days, mirrors were cast in bronze and polished to a reflective sheen. So the place was named Ingakuji, the temple of perfect realization. When asked about this, later a teacher said, set aside a moment perfect mirror buried underground. I mean, for a moment, that perfect mirror buried underground. What is the perfect mirror in your hand, hands right now? Try to bring it out of its stone coffer. If you don't, the temple of perfect realization can't be built. During a great fire that later burned the Enga Kuji, the mirror was taken to Tokiji and installed in the meditation hall. Mirror meditation is powerful. In one retreat, 35 of 45 participants had a profound opening. Each of the convent's teachers wrote a poem on her experience with the mirror. And these were taken up as koans by the nuns. Can someone explain what is mirror meditation? Look like they're about oh, to. Maybe I, it's the next paragraph. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anandia? Oh, sorry. I'm spacing out. Um, is it imagine? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Imagine sitting in front of a mirror and looking at yourself. Oh my God, I can't imagine anything more awful. Day in and day out, confronting whatever arises. First is the question of looking at all. Would you rather be doing pretty much anything else? Yes. Are you curious? What would it be like to confront the years and memories marked in your face? to go through the layers of emotion about what you see in the mirror, but to keep sitting and to stay with it until looking in the mirror is absolutely ordinary, causing no ripples at all. One of the capping phrases in an earlier essay is a poem written on mirror meditation by the teacher Yododok. Hard mind clouded, hard mind unclouded, rising and falling, all the same body. So, Malen, I guess the more you, you look in the mirror at yourself, the more unclouded it becomes. That's how I take it. Is that how you guys re read it? Let's try it. I'm sorry, what? Let us try it. Oh. Well, in a sense, we're doing it with, with the Zoom, if we look at, at our image in the... Mm. I think it's just more things open and then open and then, like, things fall away. Sometimes I have this thought when I'm, you know, one of 10 or 12 people, like, how do I know that's me? I could be any one of those 12 people. I mean, I can do things like I can raise a finger and then my image has a finger raised. But if I'm still like meditating, it's, it's only through um, some belief. There's no evidence that I'm me. The, the only way you can see yourself is through a mirror. Is there any ever any evidence, Kim? Well, it's some evidence. Yeah, I mean, is there, is there any? I think you mean, is there any certainty? Don't well, you? you you use the word evidence, so I'm using your no. word. Okay. So, well, there's evidence, but there's not certainty. Okay. Okay. Who's reading now? It's all me. Okay. 
no ripples. Then you go even further until you look in the mirror and really see your face. And in your face, you see the universe. Here are two comments on the teacher Rukai's verse. My heart mind turns with 10,000 things and the pivot it turns on is deep in the depths. Heaven and earth, one clear mirror from beginningless time, luminous, majestic. We skipped Trouty. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, shall I go? Sure. And then I'll go after that. Before each woman sat in front of the mirror, she would dust and polish it. What was she cleaning off? What was she revealing? The mirror is an ancient symbol of the heart mind's receptive clarity, able to absorb everything and reflect it back as it is. The mirror turns nothing away, nor does it hold on to anything. The women of Turkey would have agreed with this, and they also seem to have added their own understanding. They spoke of how when night had fallen, the mirror could no longer reflect anything, but the hard mind continues to see in the dark. In their koan study, they were asked to show the color and shape of this dark adapted heart mind. The nuns didn't consider med mirror meditation an emptiness practice because they thought such practices perpetuated a duality between the empty viewer and the empty things viewed. Instead, they called mirror meditation forgotten eye meditation, mm. in which all the layers of self and story, thought and emotion fall away. <coughs> to express this forgotten eye, which is a luminous presence, the nun could, by custom, use no words, compose no poems. The only response is to show your original face. Wow. Huh. How long did they do it? <laughs> Years? I don't know. It didn't say, did it? No. Images. Keep a green bough in your heart and a singing bird will visit you. Oh, Chinese proper. Nice. Many years ago, as I began to see that the koan tradition was something much larger and stranger than I'd first understood, I had a dream. I was being ferried down a river in a small skiff through a landscape of dappled light and shadow. We passed buildings half submerged in the water, some of them grand Western monuments of cool stone, some like the wooden temples I'd visited in Japan. They were majestic, silent, deserted. On one tilting roof purchased a small bird, its tropical colors brilliant against the sky. The bird had no words of wisdom for me, no special message, but it captured my imagination. Its invitation seemed to be that we'd become companions, to discover together what it meant that it had arrived. That exploration could only happen if I were open to the image, willing to watch and listen and avoid setting on premature meeting, meanings. Okay, I think it's you, Trouty. In many Zen traditions, images that arise in meditation have been called makyo, visitations from the demon realm. The advice is to ignore them as they are untrustworthy and possibly dangerous. It's true that it can become a distraction to get caught up in images that would, 
if left to themselves, rise and fall naturally. It's true that we can mistake a compelling vision for an opening, holding tight to a lesser thing and missing out for the greater. But images are one of the fundamental ways quants communicate with us. They are a universal part, universal part of meditation, and often they have something important to say. A woman takes up a koan in which there's a character called Iron Grander Lu, a Chinese nun of brilliance and spark. Suddenly Lu walks out of the koan and into the woman's life, hangs out for a couple of weeks, then turns around and heads off as swiftly as she came. It's, a nat it's natural to look for a meaning that incorporates a visitation like that it's the ongoing narration of our lives. But to focus only on what Iron Ground Deleuze appearance meant to it, means to us is to miss her. A more interesting inquiry might be to wonder how can we walk out to meet her, or in this case, follow her. Before we can integrate an image into our lives, we have to let that image integrate us. What is this thing that they're calling an image? Something that you perceive, I suppose, whatever it is. The colors that they mentioned earlier, or some forms, I don't know. I think it means an image that may arise or appear for you in meditation. Doesn't, does this happen for you, Kim, ever? Uh, no. I don't know. Hmm. Does it happen for you? Sometimes. I also, uh, in the past, worked with a teacher who would work with images. So I think when you're uh, offering welcome to them, they more tend to be happy to arise. Were, were they three-dimensional or two-dimensional? Yes. <laughs> okay, I think Cody's next. No. It was good. Who just drew it under you? I think Trouty just read, so it's Cody. Oh, so yes, on me. So. Okay. Oh, no, it was me that just read. Oh. If you meet the image at the edge of the already known, we can step into the territory of the not yet known in ways that we'd be unlikely to engineer on our own. Once we've accepted the koan image on its own term, rather than trying to make it fit ours, something new can come into being, a new insight, experience, or expression. The image brings us something, and we repay the gift by giving it a unique voice or face. See, I, I like this. Um, there's a relationship that she's talking about. Um, the 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 commun communing with. So just noticing that. I just did did a piece, maybe you remember it, uh, Nandia, on angels. And so it's kind yeah. of like an angel, isn't it? Yes, on the blades of grass. Yeah. Yeah. 
Images like these are different from fantasies, which are made up of what we already know. Desires, explanations, plans. Whoops. The job of a fantasy is to keep things centered in the self, even when that's a painful place to be, because at least it's known. The job of an image, which can be a charming and fearsome companion, is exactly the opposite. It is to shake up the status quo, to ask surprising questions, to interrupt in the kindliest of ways the ongoing narration of our lives, and to remind us, in new men's words, of how vast and wide the world is. Now it's trotting. What? <laughs> Shouldn't that be Cody? No, you come after Nandia. Oh, okay. Yes. And oh, sorry. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Delusions, which are more serious matters than fantasies, might be seen as the absence of imagination. If imaginings are questions, delusions are conclusions that lock things down too soon and too tightly. If imagination plays with the real, expanding our sense of what the real can be, delusion tries to substitute itself for the real, constricting our sense of what's true. Delusions cause us to collapse in on ourselves in danger of becoming self-centered and indifferent to the other. Imagination, which is naturally empathetic, can actually, can actually antidote delusion, making delusion's walls porous and allowing the light of a larger reality to enter. Yeah, I'm not quite getting this. Well, what we experience is different what we already know in our everyday life. The, the conclusions are a fixity that's not, uh, things are not this way. So the imagining is the question. It's the curiosity, it's the wondering, it's the looking at. But the delusion is just a, things are such a way. So the imagination, the, the, the questioning, the, the not a fixed answer is an antidote to the delusion, the fixity. Circumambulation, walking around something as a sign of devotion and respect is an old Buddhist practice. Sacred mountains are circumambulated and so are revered teachers. When you meet an image, try circumambulating it a few times and let it circumambulate you. It might turn and walk out like iron grandaloo or it might settle in the in next to you for settle in next to you for a while pregnant the gatekeeper tested yoshihimi to see if she could enter the temple what is the gate through which the buddhas come into the world Yoshimini grabbed his head and held it between her legs. Look, look, she said. The Buddhas of the three worlds arrived bearing light, the gatekeeper replied, opening the gate for Yoshimini. The images that describe what Koda Koan practice is supposed to feel like have been pretty martial through most of its history. Swords slashing, sparks flashing, 
shouts and blows, penetrating mysteries, running along knife edges, capturing the capital, and striving, always striving. This one version of heroism, though not the only one, this is one version of heroism, not though not the only one. In contrast, there's pre in contrast, there's pregnancy, another form of courage and way of describing our relationship with awakening. Xiang Changgang was a 17th century Chinese woman who had a strong religious vocation from childhood. She kept trying to enter the monastery, but the cultural demands on a woman of her time thwarted her. She practiced on her own and drove herself hard, but it didn't go as she'd hoped. In her despair, she placed on her head the ordination robes she wasn't allowed to wear, knelt in front of her altar and swore that having found what she was meant to do, she would not let it go. One day, while meditating in a dark room, she seemed to catch a glimpse of a white sun, which was almost immediately obscured again by clouds. She drove herself even harder. A while later, she was listening to a dharma encounter between a student and a teacher at the local temple, when to her surprise, she suddenly interrupted answering the teacher's question with authority. She returned to her hermitage and over the next few months had a series of deeper and deeper openings. It's still the when same she... part. Oh, sorry. Oh, you can... No, you go ahead. When she finally had a profound opening, her teacher asked, what was it like when you were gestating the spiritual embryo? She replied, it solidified deep and solitary. When you gave birth, what was that like? Being stripped completely naked? What about when you met the ancestor? I met the ancestor face to face. Yes. Mm. After her heroic tormented striving, we sink with Kuyan Gang into the profound stillness of her spiritual pregnancy and birth. She turned inward and attended to something wondrous happening inside her. When it was finally born, it left her stripped of everything, like a newborn herself. In that newborn state, she knew that she was the vastness. Huh. The imagery spoke to many people I worked with, whether they'd ever given birth or not. The long time in the dark, the growing wordless wonder, the sense of not having achieved something but of being given a great gift to take care of, the quiet certainty about what they'd experienced, all this matched their experience. The imagery of pregnancy has been part of the koan tradition from the earliest times. Chan had already been speaking of being pregnant with sagehood for centuries. Tathata Garbha, the womb of Buddhas, represents the Buddha nature abiding in potential in every human being. Meditators gradually nurtured this potential until suddenly realizing and giving birth to it, becoming Buddhas themselves. This seems useful, this idea of uh, the pregnancy, doesn't it? Toward understanding that what we're trying to do is give birth. Wow. Sometimes spiritual pregnancy and birth were seen as superior substitutes for ordinary birth, involving as it did the defilements of blood and pain in women's bodies. But then the 
Kakaya or three bodies was woven into the story. The description of the Chikaya is fleshed out in three bodies. With the three bodies, we were we are not escaping or transcending embodiment, but giving birth to a new kind of body made of the of blood and pain and joy. In the realm of the Bodhisattvas and the vastness, just like in any ordinary baby. Why can't Bodhisattvas cut the blood red uh, thread? The Cohen asked. Why would we want to? The pregnant Bodhisattvas reply. Then Ancestor Ma, born in fire, this page, altered the plot line. Sudden enlightenment is the conception of a spiritual pregnancy rather than its conclusion. Mm. Profound insight, I like that. Profound insight begins the process rather than competing, completing it. There's also that metaphor of jumping off the hundred foot pole. And then I'm, I'm told that that's just the beginning rather than the end. Interestingly, Ma never describes a birth implying an unending pregnancy during which you are able to do what you need to wear, need to wear clothes, eat food, nurture the pregnancy of sagehood and pass the time at ease with your fate. What more is there to do, he asks, and perhaps my favorite to-do list in the tradition. Nandia? Yeah. These days we would relate Ma's unending pregnancy to the process of integration after a profound opening when revelation and everyday life stain and die each other until they're a single thing in a process that goes on for the rest of our lives. In the old days, spiritual pregnancy was associated with the pilgrimages that were customary after a profound opening. The pilgrims known as Chan Ges, literally took their enlightenment on the road into the world in their own version of integration. Interesting. So is an enlightenment experience the conception of a spiritual pregnancy, or is it the birth that results from the from that pregnancy? Yes. As we have said, the koans work by juxtaposition rather than linear argument. So we lay these two versions of spiritual pregnancy next to each other and see what happens. Perhaps both can be true, both parts of a larger repeating cycle of insight, gestation, opening, and integration that rolls on for a lifetime. In the quieter moments of this larger cycle, you might begin to feel that it is not just you who are gestating something. There is also something ancient and vast that is pre pregnant, with you. What do you think? Should we stop here or go on? We can stop here. Go on. <laughs> Let's see how long it is, Cody. It's not long. Let's do this. Okay? Okay. Okay. You can be happy. Sorry, Cody. <laughs> You're fine. You're fine. 25, in the dark. In the dark, dark and further. Dada Jean. A koan invites us into the dark. Perhaps it's something like music from another room. You can hear it, but you don't know where it is it's coming from. To find out, you have to step from the well-lit room of your usual occupations into the dark rooms of what you don't yet 
No. That's where the koan will meet you. Not so that you can switch on the light. You and the koan standing there blinking at each other. But to sit a while in the dark together and discover what becomes possible when you do. This dark isn't just the absence of things like thought or knowing, but the presence of something vast and sustaining. There's a kind of eye that opens only in the dark. When it does, the Japanese teacher, Kisha Njoki, said that that is the intimate beneath your role in the story about the attendant and his teacher introduction on this page. The step, the step into the dark is a step into including that part of every of the everyday we can lose touch with, which turns out to be most of it. Given that 96% of the universe <coughs> is dark matter and energy, almost all of what's happening in any given moment is happening outside our conscious awareness. But it is no less real for that. Any true sketch of the moment could have a tremendous amount of negative space in it. We can't come to know what's going on in that space by dragging it in front of our attention. The dark has to be experienced in its own terms. The physicist David Bohm used to describe our existential situation like this. Everything that is visible and knowable from the microscopic to the deep reaches of space is like the sunlight on the foam on top of the waves that rise on the surface of an infinite ocean. An ocean that is invisible to and unknowable by us. Quote, the way things are is mysterious and hard to see, unquote. As we quote Bodhidharma when we take the Bodhisattva vows, when the point of view, oh, sorry, from the point of view of the koans, that's not an existential dilemma, but a cause for wonder. Profound peace comes with lying back on that ocean, on our own heart minds, becoming continuous with the infinite ocean of space. We darken in the darkness. And I, I take darken to mean go deeper inside ourselves. Is that how you guys see it? Okay, Trouty. There are times in Quan's study, as in the rest of life, when nothing seems to be happening and not in a good way. <clears throat> then having a felt sense of this dark that is not most of it might lead us to trust that there is something happening after all. The land is lying fallow and what's happening is happening underground out of our consciousness, conscious awareness for the time being. We might become aware, as the Chinese teacher Luo Pu did, of spring and autumn inside of bundles branches of winter. We might trust the life underground, zinging along roots with funky proliferating like neurons in the warm month, connecting the trees and plants on, of the surface with each other, feeding them, healing their wounds. Life held underground in the dark during the still, leafless months and scouring storms of winter. Life fallen away from all that concentrated, inward, waiting. When Cornish sailors are out at night, or in the fog and lose sight of land, they listen for the singing of the shore. The sound the waves make depending on whether they're frustrating over sand or pebbles, pounding against the reefs or cliffs to tell them where they are. How alive everything is in the dark, including us. The sing of the dark rolling through our heart minds returning 
to the night oceans of the sky. That's a beautiful way to end the evening, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In the dark. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the dark, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you.